The story of the Protestant Reformation is well known. Uh, We celebrated the 500th anniversary of it, nay, a few months ago. Martin Luther, the local town priest, uh, became convinced that the indulgent selling of the Catholic Church and its, its teaching was actually contrary to the message of Scripture, and he was seeing people in his church sucked away into uh, really idolatry, uh, false worship, worshiping saints and relics and, and worshiping things other than Christ, and he was provoked and wrote his 95 theses, 95 declarations, and, and really 95 declarations of what the, uh, the Pope was, was doing, the Catholic Church was tolerating how they were wrong, nailed into the, uh, the, the door outside the church and turned the world upside down. Uh, there's a lot more details in that, but you're familiar with them, I'm sure. Well, the events that fell from that are perhaps the most significant Christian event since John completed writing the book of Revelation, I think. <laughs> but often overlooked in the story of the Reformation is the role that Erasmus played. Uh, many of you might not know who Erasmus was. He was a Dutch priest. He was loyal to, to Rome. He was loyal to Catholicism, but he was appalled by the conduct of Rome and appalled by what was happening in the, the Catholic world. He viewed the popes that had been alive during his lifetime as incompetent, uh, and he understood that for there to be change, no, no one priest could oppose the pope and be successful. So he understood that for there to be change, he had to get the scriptures into the hands of the priests. That was his goal. In uh, about 1510 is when he set out on this goal. Uh, at this time, the priests had access to the Bible in Latin, but most of the priests didn't read Latin. There were no uh, translations, or they were very rare, into the vernacular. In other words, if you lived in Germany, there was no German Bible for you to read. If you lived in in England, there were some English translations, but they were not done uh, from the original Greek and Hebrew at this point, and so um, they were basically translations from, from the Latin. And so Erasmus had it as his goal to get the Bible into the hands of the priests because he thought if all of the priests could know the Bible, then they could rescue the church from the way that it was going. And so at the beginning of this, Erasmus and Luther started as allies. Erasmus was uh, an intellectual. There were traders now returning from the Middle East and, and traders, Arab traders that had made their way up through the, the Dark Ages into Europe and bringing with them uh, artifacts and, and Greek philosophy and all of this. And with the Greek philosophy, Erasmus discovered that many of the, the manuscripts of the New Testament, very, very old manuscripts that had been uh, passed down for, for generations, were still being kept uh, in the Middle East. And so he set off to collect them. To compile them, he eventually uh, collected what's now known as the Texas Receptus, the received text. It had nothing, nothing to do with the state of Texas. Um, uh, but it was the received text, the text as received. And Erasmus is the one who compiled that. That's the textual basis of, of the King James Bible. The New King James Bible is based off of that, that textual collection. And Erasmus was a textual critic. So he would take a manuscript from here and a manuscript from there, and where he saw a conflict or we saw that they weren't exactly the same, a word here or a word there, he would work the history of those manuscripts and figure out where one got changed. And on March 1st, 1516, he published the first complete Greek New Testament, I think, ever in England, or I mean, ever in Europe to be, to be published. It was an entire Greek New Testament, the entire New Testament in the Greek language, what the, how it was originally written. He published it and had it distributed. Now, the Catholic Church had all kinds of laws against doing almost exactly that. They had banned the Bible from being translated, published, and produced 
in the languages that people could read. Latin was allowed, but again, nobody could read Latin. The church thought, you know, if anybody could read Scripture, then they would interpret that for themselves, and they would overthrow the tradition of the church. And so it would be very dangerous because people aren't trained in how to interpret Scripture. Well, from your church history, you remember the Greek Empire, uh, you know, when the church began to split, the Greek Orthodox Church never fell under the Roman Catholic rule. And so Greek was one of the languages that, lo and behold, the Catholic Church had not forbidden the Bible from being translated into. Not only that, it wasn't really a translation. This was the original language it had been written into. And so, and it's a Catholic priest, a high-ranking Catholic priest who's doing this. And so it's almost like so brazen that nobody knew to stop it. You know, it's kind of like my attitude for illegal parking when I go to Washington, D.C. You know, you don't just kind of park over the line. If you're going to park illegally, park on the sidewalk and, you know, put your flashers on. Just go over the top and people will assume you know what you're doing. It's worked out so pretty well for me so far. This is Erasmus's approach to getting the Bible into Europe. Just be brazen about it. You know, you can't translate it into French or to German or to English or to Spanish or to Portuguese. Fine. Here is a Greek version of it. And let me get that to university professors. And well, what do you think is going to happen with that? You know, of course they're going to translate it into the languages. That's, that's the next step. And that was Erasmus's goal. One of these fell into Luther's hands. He and Luther had been, had been corresponding. Luther gets one uh, a few months after it was published, and it turns his world upside down. Um, it's not that at this moment Luther decided to leave Catholicism, but it was at this moment that Luther decided to write his 95 theses. And Luther himself said that he wrote his theses with his, his right hand while holding the Greek New Testament with his left hand. Well, it took more than Luther to have the Protestant Reformation. It took the Scriptures the scripture alone was not sufficient to provoke the Reformation. It required the scripture plus a Luther. A Luther alone is not sufficient. It requires a Luther plus the scripture. The two go together. Thus, barely a year passed between Luther encountering the New Testament in Greek and him launching the Protestant Reformation. You know, what Luther did in the New Testament time, in the church age, is what Josiah did in the Old Testament. And I, I give you that introduction because it's a story in the end of 2 Kings. It's easy to let your mind go over this and your eyes to just gloss through this to get through. Hey, one more good king like, like Asa and like, like Hezekiah. Here's another good king. But, you know, Josiah is different. What he does here in chapter 22 is he launches a reformation that turns Judah upside down. In the words of Acts 17, verse 6, they were spoken of Jason there, but they're true of Josiah in the Old Testament. This man turned the world upside down. As we look through Josiah's life, it's worth remembering that if Josiah was known for anything, it is spiritual reformation. Josiah, verse 1, was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedediah, the daughter of Adediah of Boskatah, and he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh and walked in all the way of David his father. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now we are 12 generations removed from David. You've got your little chart here on the, on the side, but it's, we're, we're 12 full generations away from David. Centuries have gone by before Josiah is on the scene. But Josiah is a godly king given to, to Judah in his time of need. As I go through the chapter tonight, I want to give you a, an outline, three indications of a reformer's heart. 
the three descriptions of the reformer, start whatever word you want to use, but it's, it's three pictures here. You're going to splice open Josiah's heart and look at what made this man such a powerful reformer. We get three descriptions of it as we go through this narrative. Now, I thought about splitting this up and doing it over several weeks, but let's see if we can keep it together and, and just get a full picture of the man's life in, in one setting. The first indication here is that he has a heart inclined towards God. A heart inclined towards God. And you see that in verse 2, that he walked in uh, the right, right way before Yahweh. He walked in the way of David, his father. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now this is an important description because Josiah comes out of nowhere here. If you remember who his grandfather was, his grandfather was Manasseh. And Manasseh was wicked. Manasseh was the worst of the worst. And Manasseh reigned for a long period of time, 50 years, longer than any other king, and then died two years or so after getting converted. Manasseh repents at the end of his life, repents of his idolatry, tries to bring a reformation to Judah. It is, in every sense, too little too late. People didn't take him seriously. If you look up at the end of chapter 21, verse 19, after Manasseh dies, Amon, his son, was 22 years old when he began to reign. So just do some math here. Amon was 22 when he begins to reign. Manasseh was converted two years before he died, so Amon's 20 years old when he sees his father and father come, come to faith. Amon was raised worshiping idols. Amon was raised to be the next king. Amon was raised in a world where the king had all the power, the king got to invent gods, say what gods to worship. The king was a god, really. Amon had his sight set on that. And now, right before he takes over as king... His dad gets all religious on him and starts pitching the idols out of the temple and saying we shouldn't worship idols anymore. Well, this does not sit well with Ammon, of course. I mean, and you can understand this. You could relate to this, I'm sure. You know, picture if you were raised with one worldview until you were 20 and then your dad on his, his deathbed totally changes his mind about the basic way he raised you and then dies two years later. Do you think that conversion was persuasive to you? Most likely not, certainly not to Ammon. And so you see in verse 20 of chapter 21 that Ammon did what was evil in Yahweh's sight like Manasseh's father had done. He walked in all the ways his father walked and served all the idols his father served and worshipped them. In other words, he lived just like his dad before his dad's conversion. He abandoned Yahweh, verse 22 says, the God of his fathers. He didn't walk in the way of Yahweh. His servants conspired against him and put the king to death in his house. Now his servants are not going to tolerate the way Ammon is living, and the servants are on a roller coaster here. You know, Manasseh is evil and worshiping idols, but then Manasseh repents and throws the idols out, and now his son is back to putting the idols in. There's only so much of this the servants in the king's house can take, and so it crosses a line here with the third, you know, religious conversion in as many years, and so his servants kill him. The people in the land are no less accommodating than the servants. They didn't like uh, Manasseh's conversion. They don't like Ammon's restoration of the idol worship. And they don't like that Ammon was killed. They don't like anything. In a sense, they're like Americans. <laughs> they don't like anything that's happening right here. Vote the bums out was their attitude. <laughs> and so they conspire against the people that conspired against Ammon. And they kill him. They kill them. And then they make Josiah his son, king in his place. So that's what I say here, like this guy comes out of, of left field. You know, this is like in the movies where there's the random cabinet member that is taken away in case everybody gets wiped out and that random cabinet member becomes the president. That's kind of what we're seeing here. You know, the king is gone, his son is gone, all the people that had staffed the, the cabinet, they're all gone. So who's left? Well, Josiah. Nobody knows anything about him. 
He was eight years old when he begins to reign. But his heart is inclined towards God. His heart is inclined towards God. As I said, his grandfather hardly had persuasive evangelism because, I mean, what's Manasseh's message? Manasseh's message is, hey, you should worship Yahweh, the God who's going to send you into captivity into Babylon. And would that get you to convert? (laughs) Hey, worship this God because he's going to destroy your country. Go for it. And so they weren't persuaded, but Josiah, somehow this resonates with Josiah's heart. It resonates with him. What would Josiah know about God at this point? He has nobody to teach him. When he was eight, he was six, I guess, when his, his dad died or, was, or his grandfather died and probably four when his grandfather was converted. I mean, what does he remember about anything? But somehow his heart was soft towards the Lord. He's going to walk in the way of the Lord like his great-grandfather, like his grandfather for the last two years of his life. But at this point of his life, all he has is a shadow of a godly legacy. There's echoes in the hallway. There's rumors in the hallway about worshiping Yahweh. There's nothing more. He has no priests. There's no priest to teach him how to live. He has no access to God's word. It's not like he can go to the, the royal library and check out the Bible and read about David and Goliath. He has no access to this stuff. He has no access to God's prophets. There are two prophets during this time, Jeremiah and Zechariah, but they are notoriously missing from this narrative. Don't know where they are. Perhaps they went to Egypt. Perhaps they're on a prophet retreat. Don't know. But Josiah doesn't appear to have access to them. So all he gets is a heart that's soft towards the Lord somehow and an ear that's sensitive and a longing to know more. There's no explanation for this apart from the favor of the Lord which was a testimony to Israel. It was God's demonstration of favor to David, Hezekiah, and even to Manasseh. But the fact is that Josiah's heart was tender to the things of the Lord. William Tyndale wrote, we're better to be without God's law than with the Pope's law. And that's where Josiah is at this point. He doesn't have God's law, but that's okay because he doesn't have Manasseh's or Ammon's either. He's just in a neutral zone right here where his heart is inclined towards the Lord, whom he's never read a word from his lips. Well, in the 18th year of King Josiah, who's grown up here, the king sent Saphon, the son of Azaliah, the son of uh, Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of Yahweh, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that's been brought into the house of Yahweh, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. Let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have oversighted the house of Yahweh. Let them give it to the workmen who are now at the house of Yahweh repairing the house. That is, to the carpenters and the builders and the masons. Let them use it for buying timber and a quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that's delivered in their hand, for they deal honestly. And so this we fast forward here. We've jumped some time in this future event here. Now there's a high priest. So there's some restoration of Yahweh worship. And now he's saying, let's get the temple going, okay? We've been collecting money. The priests are always good at collecting money, whether or not they have the law. <laughs> let's use it now. Let's build up the temple. Well, this starts happening. And that's going to lead us to the second demonstration here of an indication of a reformer's heart, a heart inclined towards God. And that's even before Josiah encountered the word of God. His heart was inclined to believe it. But secondly, a heart that was hungry for God's word. And you see this in verse 8. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I found the book of the law in the house of Yahweh. Now, you really do have to stop there and just marvel at this verse. (laughs) You guys have cleaned out a garage before, I'm sure, and you stumble across something in the the back of the garage that was, 
I don't know, somewhat surprising. Uh, uh, cleaning out a, a garage at uh, my parents' house, I stumbled across a, an American flag that was given to my grandfather in, in uh, the Air Force or the Air Corps, uh, when, I guess when he died, and it was given to my dad. I don't know anything about this story. I just stumbled across this American flag given to our family for military service. I don't know anything about it. I just found it, and I never heard of it. I didn't even know he was military. Find a flag for him in the house. And I've had other experiences going through the garage and finding like kids' pictures and stuff and silly things that I did when I was a kid. I try to throw those away before my parents catch me. And then they get up, then they get upset, of course. Look what they found in the garage. The law of the Lord. Just sitting there covered in dust. You wonder, did they recognize it when they stumbled across it? <sighs> Blow the dust off of it. It would have been in a scroll form. Unwrap the scroll and look at this. I mean, how much of it did they have to read before they realized what they had? This is probably just the book of Deuteronomy, by the way, is, is what they found. It could have been all five books of the law, but most commentators say that it's probably just the book of Deuteronomy, and um, we don't have time to go into the reasons for that. But regardless, he found something, either the first five books or just the book of Deuteronomy, and this is surprising. They hadn't seen it before. Hilkiah doesn't know what to do with it. <laughs> So, again, that's funny. The high priest stumbles across the law in his 18th year on the job. <laughs> I don't know what to do with this. Give it to the uh, king's chief of staff. Let him sort through it. <laughs> so it gets to Shaphan. He reads it. The king's chief of staff reads it. He's blown away by this. I mean, think what's in Deuteronomy. It's the covenant with Israel. That if you walk in the way, God will bless you. And if you don't, he will curse you. There is a nation that's getting cursed. They don't know why they're getting cursed. Here's the answer. There's the command in there. The king is supposed to write a copy of the law when he first becomes king. Josiah obviously hasn't done that because they don't have the law. I mean, there's just mind-blowing things in there. It ends the mystery of how you're supposed to live, what God requires of you. That's all answered in that book. They didn't know those questions. So the chief of staff gets it and reports it to the king in verse 9. And he, notice how he, he buries the lead here. Your servants have emptied out the money, uh, and that's going to get the king's attention, that was found in the house, and they've delivered to the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of Yahweh. And then Shaphan the secretary, and secretary's not, remember, typing, he's the chief of staff here. Then he tells the king, oh yeah, also one more thing before you go, Friday afternoon, just so you know, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan then read it before the king. When the king, how do you think the king would respond to this? I mean, you probably know, but it's just interesting to think about. This is his first ever exposure to God's word. What does he think about it? The king heard the words of the book of the law and he tore his clothes. And just marvel at that for a second. It's a standard sign of mourning, but think about what that means. Uh, peasants were allowed to, you know, common people could tear their clothes, but they were supposed to do it in private. Only kings or high public officials were allowed to tear their clothes publicly, and it was to demonstrate national mourning. Clothes are given to you by God so that you can be discreet and to, to, to cover yourself for, for modesty, but the Lord sees through clothes. You know, the Lord sees your heart. And so ripping your, your garments is, a, in a sense, a, an Old Testament godly way of demonstrating your humility and brokenness for the Lord. And that's what Josiah does. The king commanded Hilkiah the priest, 
and Hayakim, the son of Shaphan, and Akabor, the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan, the secretary, and Asiah, the king's servant, and here's the command. This is what it's supposed to do. The king has just heard the book of Deuteronomy read to him. This is his response. Go inquire of Yahweh for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of Yahweh that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book so to do according as written concerning us. I mean, he is in full panic mode right here. This is why their enemies are surrounding them. This is why it's not raining when it's supposed to. This is why God's favor is against them. The, the mystery is solved. And he believes it and he's broken by it. So Hilkiah the priest and Aachim and Akbor and Shaphan and Isaiah went to Hildiah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah. We don't know who this woman is, but she's a prophetess. Remember, Jeremiah, Zechariah, notoriously absent in this chapter. She was the keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lives in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and so they, they talk to her. She, she's the only one with a reputation for being a prophetess. Never seen before, here she is. So they go to her. These people, again, they don't know what to do. They're running around in circles in panic mode. They don't even know where to begin. And you have to have some sympathy for them. Put yourself in their shoes and you stumble across the book of Deuteronomy not knowing anything about the law. Now what? And you're the king. I mean, it's one thing if just a normal person stumbles across it, but you're the king responsible for the spiritual well-being of your people. Here's a book telling you what you're supposed to do. You haven't even heard it before. Now go and do it. And where do you even begin? If I told you to obey the book of Deuteronomy, where, where do you start? <laughs> chapter one and just start working for, I, mean, I don't know. So he doesn't know either, scatters the troops, finds the prophetess, asks her, and she has a word from the Lord in verse 15. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, message for the king, thus says Yahweh, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants all the words of the book of the king of Judah has read because they've forsaken me. They've made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place. It will not be quenched. In other words, it is too late, Josiah. There's no turning this bus around. It is going to go off the cliff. You're all going to be on it. Seatbelts will do no good. <laughs> but to the king of Judah... Verse 18, who sent you to inquire of Yahweh, thus you shall say to him, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and that word that's in ESV is penitent, it's the Hebrew word, it means tender, soft. Because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before Yahweh, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares Yahweh. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. Now, we will look in a few minutes at how the king responds to that message, because that is not the message he was expecting, probably. Yeah, you're all going to die, but since you have a soft heart, I'll let you escape first. You won't get to see the car crash that's coming. But verse 19, I want to spend a little bit more time. I want to pull the car over, so to speak, here at verse 19. And look at the incredible nature of this verse. Here's this man whose heart was inclined towards the Lord, obviously hunger, hungry for God's word, because just the eager way he responds. Look at the three descriptions in here that the prophetess gives. He's penitent, he's humbled, and he's mournful. 
this becomes a description of a heart that's hungry for God's word. I mean, it's almost Christianese to say, hey, you should hunger for God's word. I used to have a, Christian, I used to have a, a cheesy Christian t-shirt that had a sheep standing on an open Bible grazing and had the church's name and it said where the sheep like to eat. I have that shirt ingrained in my memory. It's almost kind of a cheesy Christianese expression like, oh, you should be hungry for God's word. But this verse, 2 Kings 22, 19, breaks it down into little subsets here. What does it mean to be hungry for God's word? Well, there's three descriptions. You're penitent, that you're humbled, that you're mournful. And again, that word penitent is the word for, for tender. One commentator, Ellsworth, writes this, a tender heart is one that is soft rather than hard. It is a heart which is capable of receiving an impression. Now, what that means is if a seal or stamp is placed against something that's impressionable, the object that's placed against will take on that, that image, that graphic. That's what tenderness means. If you press the tender heart against God's word, the heart comes away with the image of God's word on it. That's what it means to have a tender heart. Now, Josiah's heart is obviously tender. It's soft like wax when the book of Deuteronomy is pressed against it, and he comes away wanting to live out that commands. And that's a necessary component to Reformation here. That's what it means to have a hungry heart, is that you encounter God's word, and God's word affects you. It's a given that you would be reading the Bible. That's a given. But reading the Bible does not mean you have a tender heart. Reading the Bible might mean you have an inquisitive heart. It might mean you have an inc- a curious heart. It might mean that you're, you're bored even. Who knows what it means? It might mean you're looking for, as W.C. Fields would say, a loophole. That could be why you're reading the Bible. That's very different than the tender heart person. The tender heart person is reading the Bible so that his heart will be conformed to it. The heart has to be impressed upon by God's word. What you see here is that your soul has the faculty to work upon itself. Your soul can shape itself for godliness, but it can only break itself up. It can't cause itself to grow. It needs the word to cause itself to grow. And you know this, the hard soil doesn't receive the seed. The seed bounces off the hard soil. If your heart is hard, it doesn't receive God's word. But your heart has the capacity to break itself up to receive the word of God implanted. That's what it means to have a penitent heart, a tender heart, that you have the capacity to work on your soul in such a way that you are eager to receive the word of God so that it it absorbs it. You call ground fertile when it can absorb water. That's true with the heart that is penitent or tender. Second component of this is the heart that's humbled. It's low before itself. That's the second word here. You humbled yourself before Yahweh. And notice how Josiah did humble himself. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth. He sent people to inquire of a prophetess. This is the king inquiring of other people. That in itself is humility. Hezekiah realizes his sin is against God, of course. And that's what it means to be humble. And it's an astonishing thing to see a king humble, isn't it? Well, that's what you see here. A humble person looks in a mirror and sees a sinner. The proud person declares he's thankful he's not like those sinners. The humble person looks in the mirror and sees the sinner. Richard Sibb says the the humbled person looks in the face of another wicked man and sees in that face a mirror. I love that image. A humble person looks at a, a great sinner, and when he looks at a great sinner in the eye, what he sees is himself. This is humiliation. It's driven by the knowledge of sin. How low you are. 
Not by punishment. Remember, Josiah is not broken because he's afraid of being punished by God. That's not humility. True humiliation is inward, where you are, you are inside of your heart broken by your sin. It's more of an, I guess, an explosion than an implosion. True humility is your heart just from inside being grieved rather than punishment breaking you down. You understand this if you're a parent. Some children mourn when they're caught in sin. Not because they're mourning that they sinned. Of course not. They're mourning that they got caught. And you understand the difference. And so it is with people in God. Some people mourn about their sin, but only when their sin is found out. And in that case, they're not mourning the loss of God's favor. They're mourning the loss of sin's pleasure. That's forced humility, and it's not godly repentance. That's not what is happening with Josiah. Josiah didn't get caught in sin here. Josiah is wanting his sin exposed. He's searching it out. That's what it means to be humbled. He wants new sin to be confronted with. He wants to know the extent of his spiritual condition. A man can be humbled, but not humble, in other words. Josiah was both. He was humbled and humble. And the third little component here that the prophetess gives us is that he was mournful. He wept before the Lord. He tore his clothes, verse 19 says, and then wept. A true Christian hates sin in himself as much as he hates it in others. Josiah here, I mean, he's actually weeping about his sin. Tenderness leads to humbleness, and that leads to reformation, but only through the heart is mourning. This is often called by the Puritans the art of self-mourning. I like that phrase. We have the concept of self-loathing as you know, low self-esteem or whatever, but this little image here is something different than low self-esteem. This is the art of self-mourning, that you mourn your spiritual condition. The heart that mourns produces a tenderness. The tenderness of the, of the broken heart, it melts the, the callousness of sin, and the Word works in the heart and changes it. The Word reforms the heart. But for the Word to reform the heart, it requires the tender heart, it requires the humility to be put yourself before the word, and then it requires the mourning over your condition. Do you hate your sin? That would be an expression of this kind of mortification, self-love that you despise. One more comment from Richard Sibbs. I'm quoting a lot of him because he wrote a book called Josiah's Reformation, which is incredible. <laughs> he writes, quote, If I should lose my wife or my child... My naughty heart would weep and be grieved. <laughs> Let me say that sentence one more time. If I should lose my wife or my child, my naughty heart would weep and be grieved. But now there's a greater cause of mourning my own sin, and yet my heart is silent. It was Augustine that said that he could weep for the death of a woman who killed herself out of love for him, but he lacked the capacity to weep for his sin against God. And that's what you see with King Josiah here. He's broken and tender before the word of the Lord. He's humble before God's word working and impressing on his heart. And he's mourning over his own sin. And by the way, he's not just mourning over his own sin. He's mourning over corporate sin here. He's mourning over sins he hasn't even committed. He's mourning over the sins of his people. And I think there is an element of corporate mourning that is an important part for Christians to have. Christians should mourn over corporate sins of our church or of our, of our people. Because if you, don't mourn, if you don't mourn over sins that those around you are committing, you're participating in those sins just by, by proxy, really. If someone next to you is sinning and you aren't mourning over it or rebuking it, then you are, in a sense, condoning it. And that's certainly true with King Josiah here. He's weeping over sins he's confronted with that he didn't even commit. But his people did. 
His people did. And he's going to come away with a new desire to be godly. Here was Wycliffe who went on to say that his goal was that the plowman would know more of the scriptures than the Catholic priest. <laughs> and of course he completed that. That's going to be Josiah's goal right now. Right now Josiah knows more of the scriptures than the, the priests in town and those in the temple. And he's going to get about and he's going to set his mind to letting the people know God's word as well. He wants the melting power of God's grace to work not only on his own heart, but specifically in the lives of his people. That leads to the third indication of a reformer's heart, a heart that's obedient to God. You have a heart that's inclined towards God, a heart that's hungry for God, seen in those other descriptions, and now a heart that's obedient towards God. Notice your size response to the word of God, and we're going to kind of walk our way through all of chapter, well, the first half of chapter 23 here. Because this is, again, where would you start? If you are in Josiah's shoes or wearing Josiah's crown, so to speak, holding his scepter, where would you start with this? You just come across Deuteronomy. Now what are you going to go do? And this is the answer here. The king sent and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. So step one, get the leaders. The king went up to the house of Yahweh, and with him all the men of Judah, and not, just, not every individual of Judah, but all their representatives, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all the priests and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of Yahweh. So step one, notice what he does here. He reads the word for the whole country. He's not squirreling this away for himself like the Catholic Church did. He's not guarding it. He wants it out. He wants every individual to know this. He stood by the pillar in verse 3. He made a covenant before Yahweh to walk after Yahweh, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart. There's that phrase again. His heart is fully engaged in this. And all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in this covenant. He's leading reformation here. The king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of Yahweh all the vessels made for Baal and Asherah and all the host of heaven. Manasseh apparently didn't get rid of all of them or Amon brought many of them back. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. Now Bethel is the place that is in Judah. It's the, that tip there right where it borders Samaria. And that is the place where they erected the golden calf earlier to worship. So he, notice what he's doing here. This is not subtle. <laughs> he's not in you know, virtue signaling here. He's getting the idols. He's breaking them, melting them down, getting the, the, then burning it, getting the ashes. And he's going out to Bethel where the golden calf was, and he's going to spread the ashes out there. In verse 5, he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high priests in the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem, those who also burned incense to Baal and the sun and the moon and the, uh, the constellations and all the hosts of heaven. So he fires all the priests. He's cleaning house or cleaning temple here, I guess you could say. Come on. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of Yahweh outside Jerusalem and the book of Kidron and burned it at the book of Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust upon the graves of the common people. That's a way of defiling, you know, it's the fertility God. So if you want to defile the fertility God, break her poles down, burn them, and spread the ashes in the graves of people who have already died. That's the, kind of like the anti-fertility right there. <laughs> he broke down the houses, verse 7, of the male cult prostitutes who were in the temple of Yahweh. So there were male prostitutes living in God's temple. Remember, the, the spirit of the Lord left during Manasseh's reign. He had to have, I mean, for this to be tolerated. Well... Uh, the last part of verse 7, the women wove hangings for Asherah and the male 
called prostitutes' house. He ripped those down. He brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah. He defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. He broke down all the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of uh, the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the gate of the city. In other words, when you walked into that city, you saw these idols that you walked by to enter into Judah. He breaks those down. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of Yahweh in Jerusalem but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. So he, the priests have abandoned him at this point. He's on a one-man mission right now. He defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnon, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Moloch. Remember, people would take their firstborn child, they'd go to this valley, and they would encase the child and then burn him in fire and take their ashes out of that case and build it into their house or spread it in that valley. So he goes to that place where people were doing that, even in Jerusalem. We read about that last week. And he defiles that valley. He removed the horses, verse 11, and the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance of the house of Yahweh by the chamber of Nathan Melech in the chamberlain who was in the precincts, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. Now he's burning his army because his, the, the, the chariots in his army were dedicated to pagan gods. So he's burning them. I mean, <laughs> you thought you had a radical conversion? He's burning his chariots. <laughs> the altars, verse 12, on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts outside the house of Yahweh, he pulled down, broke into pieces, and cast the dust on them in the book of Kidron. The king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption. <laughs> what a great name that place is. Which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashroth and the abominations of the Sidonians, for Kamash and the abomination of Moab and for Milcom and the abomination of the Ammonites. Remember, he married all these peoples as 1 Kings 12 through 14. Solomon married these other wives. They brought their gods. Solomon let their gods move in, not into Jerusalem, but just on the hill outside of Jerusalem. Now, that was Solomon's compromise. Yeah, I'll marry you. Yeah, you can bring your gods. Just not into the house. Keep them across the street. Well, of course, Solomon's children went on to worship those gods. When it's hundreds of years later, Josiah is throwing them back out. Verse 14, he broke in the pieces and cut down the asherim. That's the high places that they were never able to deal with. He filled their places with the bones of men. <laughs> I mean, that's hardcore. Cuts down the fertility poles, fills the holes where they used to be put in the ground with the bones of men. So they're not going to rebuild the fertility poles on the bones of dead people. Again, that's the anti-fertility. He, uh, verse 15, moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of Yahweh, the man of God had proclaimed, who had predicted these things. Now this is worth pausing right here. I'm not going to have you flip because this is hundreds of years earlier, but last year is over a year ago. We were going through 1 Kings 13, and I told you, and you might have listened, I told you to put a little asterisk in the side of your Bible in 1 Kings 13 and write that it's fulfilled in 2 Kings 23. And that's where this happens. So if you listened and you have this corresponding already in your, in your Bible, this is hundreds of years earlier, remember, where King Jeroboam built the, the idol to worship and the prophet came and confronted him and the king pointed at the prophet and said, seize him, and the, the king's hand withered. And the prophet declared, healed the king's hand, but then said, I'll heal your hand. But remember, there's going to be another prophet who's going to take your idol and destroy it into dust. And then he went his way. 
and the book of 1 Kings ended, and life goes on, and hundreds of years later, you see Josiah on a rampage, and he stumbles across that place, and he burns. He's outside of Judah now. He's, he's into the Israeli border here. He's left his country to destroy idols, but it's according to the word of God. Verse 17, he said, what's that monument I see as he's right there where the prophecy was given? And the men of the city told him, well, it's the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you've done against the altar at Bethel. Do you remember what happened to that prophet when he told the king and healed the king's hand? The prophet left and then he ended up uh, getting, getting killed by lions because he doubted, the prophet doubted God's word. And so they buried him and they buried the prophet that ambushed the other prophet. It's a complicated story, First Kings 14. They buried those prophets together and then said hundreds of years later, this will happen, and now it's happened. And so, Josiah, verse 18, says, let him be. Let no man move that prophet's bones. They left his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. They let the prophet stay buried without defiling his grave to defile the idols. He's the one man. Even though he was killed for doubting, his bones will be a testimony of God's faithfulness. That is such a, a sweet irony, isn't it? He doubted God's word, and he was killed by God for it. But now his bones are the testimony that God's word is always true. Verse 18, Josiah, 19, Josiah removed the shrines out of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made, provoking Yahweh to anger. He did to them according to all that he'd done at Bethel. He sacrificed all the priests to the high places who were there on the altars, and he burned human bones in them, and he returned to Jerusalem. Most astonishing yet. Verse 21, the king commanded the people, keep the Passover to Yahweh your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. Now, the last time Passover was celebrated that I can find, and, and one of you might be eager to point out that I'm missing one afterwards and I'm welcome to receive it, but the last one I could find is in the book of Joshua during the days of the judges. That's the last time Passover was celebrated as far as I know, and I don't think they celebrated it since. But now Josiah reads the book of Deuteronomy and he's supposed to be celebrating Passover. And so, all right, let's do this. <laughs> They're supposed to do it every year. Verse 22, no such Passover been kept since the day of Judges. Again, I might be missing something, but I don't think, and that, that description is in the book of Joshua, I believe, who judge Israel during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to Yahweh in Jerusalem. They're finally celebrating the Passover. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums, the necromancers, the household gods, the idols, and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book of Hilkiah, the priest, that they found in the house of Yahweh. Notice at the end of this, it's all tied up. Why is he doing all this? Because God's word tells him to. That's the only justification he needs. He is only doing this because God told him to do it. That's why verse 25, before him there was no king like him who turned to Yahweh with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Still, Yahweh did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations by which Manasseh had provoked him. We'll look more at that next week. The main point from this section Josiah's heart was obedient towards God because he had God's word. Listen, this is the main point from Josiah's life. If your heart is tender towards the Lord, do you know what happens when you come across a command in the Bible? You want to obey it. What you see with Josiah here is just radical obedience. One commentator writes, obedience to God is not just good intentions, but concrete implementation of the Torah. 
Josiah becomes determined to obey, to actually put the conviction he just read about into action. Now, obviously, God is bringing unfinished business with Israel by fulfilling his prophecy, but Josiah alone stands out as the leader of this Reformation. One of Jonathan Edwards' 70 resolutions they wrote when he was a teenager. He wrote the date that he wrote it. He wrote this one apparently twice. It's one of the few that has two dates, January 14th and July 3rd, 1723, is this. On the supposition that there was never to be but one individual in the world at any one time who was properly a complete Christian, in all respects a right stamp, having Christianity always shining in his true luster and appearing excellent and lovely from whatever part and under whatever character viewed, resolved to act just as I would do if I strove with all my might to be that one. Let me try, let me the NIV version of that. Edward says, if there is only one true Christian alive at any one period of time, I am resolved to be that person. I'm resolved to live in such a way as if I was that person. That's King Josiah. It's simply staggering what he did. But it doesn't have a happy ending. Luther died before the Reformation hit England. Before it hit, I mean, today it hasn't hit Spain, France, or Italy yet. Josiah dies before he sees the Savior come to Israel. Josiah dies before he sees the promise of the book of Deuteronomy fulfilled. Because the promise of the book of Deuteronomy is that God will put the law in the people's hearts. That it will not be far away, impossible to find, but they will have it. It will be very near on their tongue and in their, their heart. Josiah dies before that happens. And that's the story of all reformers. Their work is all incomplete. Because Josiah turns the Old Testament, Luther turns the church age, you could say it that way, but in the middle of all that is the cross. That Josiah is just an image that points further towards Christ. And the Savior is going to come. He's not going to be, he will be descended from Josiah, but he's not called Josiah's son. He is called David's son because David is the one who received the promise that would be his descendant who reigns on the throne. Josiah celebrated the Passover, which I don't think that David did. Josiah purged the idols that David's indifference allowed to crop up in Israel. Nevertheless, Josiah was not the perfect king. His life comes to a violent end, and if you, if you wonder how he's killed in, in conflict, we'll read about that next week, but he's killed in war. The prophet said he would go to his grave in peace. We'll talk more about that next week as well. I'm grateful that the Savior is follows in Josiah's footsteps to, to clean house and to be holy, but I'm grateful the Savior is greater than Josiah because Josiah can't die in our place. All of Josiah's sacrifices couldn't forgive a single person of their sin. The best Josiah could do is to celebrate the Passover. But what Christ does is he replaces the Passover with his own death. Lord, we're thankful that you've given us a sacrifice better than a Passover lamb. And that sacrifice is the power to change our hearts. Lord, we marvel that you use human hearts to direct history. We're such fickle creatures and our hearts seem to be so wicked at times and it, it pleases you to use them to direct your will in this world. Lord, I pray for the hearts of those who are here tonight. I pray that our church would be marked by tender hearts. And that we would view tenderness of heart not as a, a womanly trait but as a Christian trait that we would esteem it, that we would be easily, easily impressioned, easily impressionable if the object that impresses us is the Word of God. 
I pray that our hearts would be fertile, would receive the implanted seed of the word, that we'd be humble before your word, that we'd be mournful over our own sin and the sin of our church and of our people, and yet that we would be rejoicing, rejoicing that you gave Israel a Josiah, rejoicing that you give us your son, and that we're found in him. We're grateful that you forgive us of our sins, not through the Passover lamb, but you forgive us of our sins through the death of the true Passover lamb. You pass over our sins because our faith is in Christ. Because of that, we love him, we love you, Lord, and we're grateful that you give us something more valuable than silver and gold, more valuable than the idols of this world. You give us Christ. We receive him. In his name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.